evening and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon. And on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran Church of Plymouth, which jointly present the Faith and Life Lecture Series as well as all of our sponsors, it is my privilege and pleasure to welcome you here tonight. A couple of logistical items. Uh, after we hear from our speaker, you will have a chance to ask him some questions through an open microphone. So I invite you to be thinking about things you'd like to ask him as you're listening to his presentation. Following that, you'll have a chance to visit with him personally in the narthex and also to purchase his book, uh, which he will be happy to inscribe for you. It is probably impossible to overstate the significance and importance of C.S. Lewis as an author uh, of the Christian faith. Uh, at the turn of the century, Christianity Today conducted a survey among Christians, uh, teachers, writers, pastors, to put together a list of the 100 most influential and important books of the 20th century. C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity topped that list easily. His Chronicles of Narnia also appeared on that list, and the editors noted that they could have added many, many other titles, but as they said, they had to give some other authors a chance. <laughs> In a magazine called The Christian Century, which is dated October 20th, 2009, so just dated a few days ago, uh, this magazine put out a list of the top five books being published currently by a variety of different publishers. Uh, Harper One, which publishes Mere Christianity, uh, has among its top five Mere Christianity, was, which was written nearly 60 years ago. It's remarkable. We have with us tonight a person who is probably one of the foremost experts on C.S. Lewis in the world today. He has lived and worked and studied and taught at Oxford and Cambridge, where Lewis himself taught and, and studied. He lived for a time at Lewis's own house called the Kilns, uh, sleeping in Lewis's own bedroom and studying and working in Lewis's own office. His book, called Planet Narnia, which was published 22 months ago, is, in my opinion, in the opinion of people who know far better than I, uh, perhaps the most important book ever written on the Chronicles of Narnia. And indeed, Oxford University Press, which publishes it, has it listed at number one in its list of the top five books currently in publication. Uh, and as he will tell you, he uh, is perhaps best known for handing a pair of spectacles to James Bond in the movie, The World Is Not Enough. He's not going to be able to talk about that tonight, but if you have a chance, you can ask him about it later. Uh, this is his first ever trip to Minnesota, and would you help me welcome Dr. Michael Ward. Thank you very much for coming out on this cold, dark, blustery evening. It makes this Englishman feel really at home. <laughs> the heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. The opening lines of Psalm 19. A psalm which C.S. Lewis depicted here on the cover of Time magazine in the 1940s. 
described as the greatest poem in the book of Psalms and one of the finest lyrics in the world. And in the next 50 minutes or so, I want to talk about how C.S. Lewis thought about the heavens and how he wove the imagery of the seven heavens into the books for which he's best known, the seven chronicles of Narnia. Can I just do a straw poll and ask, who here has read at least one of the Narnia books or seen at least one of the Narnia films? Thank you. All those who didn't put up their hands must leave now. <laughs> yes, I expected that kind of response. They are incredibly well-known books, uh, getting all the better known through these feature films that are being made of them. As Tim said, they were published nearly 60 years ago, and yet they still sell in their millions, about 3 million copies, I'm told, annually, worldwide, in over 30 different languages. They are a veritable publishing phenomenon. And what is it that has made these books become so popular? Why have they survived when so many other books published in the 1950s have sunk without trace? It's a question worth asking because the Narnia books have elicited very various responses. Some people think they are works of genius. Some people take a different view. But before we get onto that, you might ask yourself, what's the point in spending the best part of an hour of your life thinking about books which are supposedly just for the children? Do they really merit serious consideration? Well, I think they do, because first of all, they're not just for the children, are they? They can be read at every age. But even if they were just for the children, children's literature has a good claim, I think, to being the most important kind of literature that there is. Plato wrote in the Republic that the beginning is the biggest part of any work, and therefore it's of supreme importance in that work which is the construction of the human person that children should hear good fables and not bad ones. What you hear as a child when your parents are reading to you at, bed at bedtime, as my parents read the Narnia books to me as I was growing up, what you hear through fairy tale and fable and adventure story has an importance in how you understand the world, how you interpret your place, how you imagine yourself to be living in a story yourself. You know the, uh, the proverb, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Well, what about the hand that writes the bedtime fairy tale? That also has an important part to play in the eventual rulership of the world, because it's in our early years when our emotional responses to the world are being formed that fairy tales play a particularly central part. You might know the children's author Philip Pullman. Uh, he has achieved quite a lot of notoriety in the United Kingdom as a kind of atheistical alternative to C.S. Lewis. He wrote a trilogy called the Dark Materials Trilogy, one of, one of the, the first of which, The Golden Compass, was re recently made into a film. Um, and he has said of himself and his fellow authors that we teach the world we create. He means the imaginative world that an author gets his readers to inhabit. We teach the world we create. 
a lot of what you learn in story carries over into your understanding of the real world, the world outside the story. And, and Philip Pullman creates an atheistical world in his stories. C.S. Lewis's world of Narnia is quite different. The world of Narnia contains a surprising variety of different mythological traditions. Father Christmas, for instance, English children, a snow queen out of the pages of a Hans Anderson fairy tale, dryads, naiads, fauns, centaurs, and other characters from Greek and Roman mythology. Why did Lewis stuff all these different things into one single story, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? Is there any logic? Is there any purpose behind his choices of all these different things? His great friend Tolkien thought there wasn't. Tolkien regarded the Narnia books as a hodgepodge, a mishmash, and he strongly detested the way Lewis assembled the stories out of these various mythologies, and he soon gave up trying to read them. He said they were entirely outside his range of sympathy. Many critics following in Tolkien's wake have made very similar judgments, assessing Narnia as a jumble and inconsistent and slapdash. So why have they become so popular? Is it really possible that books that were apparently dashed off in an afternoon could have become some of the best-selling children's works of all time? Is that really likely? Well, most... Uh, literary scholars, most uh, Lewis experts, have disagreed with Tolkien and think that the, the books hold together very well. They might be a, a colorful rag bag at the, at the kind of level of the story, but isn't there a, a deeper level of theological significance? C.S. Lewis himself once said that the whole series was about Christ, and a Christ-centered reading of these books does have a good deal to recommend it because it's the Christ character of Aslan, the Lion King, who is the only character who appears in all seven books. And he certainly seems to fulfill many of the major Christ-like functions. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he's the redeemer. In The Magician's Nephew, he's the creator. In The Last Battle, he's the judge. Yes, but these are only three of the seven books. What about the other four? Why has Aslan been depicted in the ways he is in these four stories? Why does he enter the story amongst dancing trees before giving a great war cry in Prince Caspian? Why is he seen flying in a sunbeam in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Why, this, why does he not appear bodily within Narnia at all in the silver chair? Why is he mistaken for two lions, maybe three lions, in The Horse and His Boy? What biblical aspect of Christ's life and ministry is C.S. Lewis trying to get at by depicting Aslan in these ways? If you look to the Christ figure for a sense of coherence and uniformity, this apparent problem of the hodgepodge nature of the Chronicles only seems to get worse. And if we think about Lewis's general habits of mind, this problem becomes even more acute because Lewis's work in general contains an unusually high sense of consistency and coherence. He, he wasn't a random or a slapdash writer or thinker. His great friend Owen Barfield once said that what Lewis thought about everything was somehow secretly present in what he said about anything. 
Randomness isn't a characteristic feature of his mental world. His poetry, for instance, not many people know his poetry, but if you have read it, you'll be aware that it's full of a fantastic level of intricacy. Lewis himself once said that the poems which look as if they're in free verse are often in the most complicated meters of all. And it's not just his own thinking and writing that are very complex. Lewis once said that intricacy is a mark of the medieval mind. And Lewis, of course, was a medieval scholar. We'll be coming back to this later. Medieval writers like Chaucer and Dante and many others love to present us, Lewis said, with something which can't be taken in at a glance, something which at first looks planless, though all is planned. And as a Christian, Lewis thought that God was the supremely intricate craftsman and that every single thing God has created has been made both for its own particular sake and for the sake of every other thing. Each element in creation has its peculiar purpose and an interdependent purpose with every other thing. In Lewis's book on prayer, he says that even seemingly random things are created for a purpose, down to the curve of every wave and the flight of every insect. Now, bearing these things in mind, is it really possible that Narnia could be a hodgepodge, a mishmash? If so, it would be entirely uncharacteristic of Lewis and different from what we see him to have practiced as a writer elsewhere, different from what he most valued as a literary historian, different from what he believed as a Christian. And those who have studied Lewis most closely are aware of this problem presented by the Narnia books. It isn't just something I've dreamt up myself. And so they've gone looking for some kind of third level of significance that might tie the books together. One critic, for example, has suggested the, book, the chronicles are based on the seven deadly sins. Another critic has linked the chronicles to the seven Catholic sacraments, overlooking the fact that Lewis wasn't a Catholic. <laughs> he was an Anglican, as I am, and in Anglicanism there are only two official sacraments, not seven. Various other ideas have been put forward, and I myself, I must confess, once made a half-hearted attempt to connect the chronicles to different plays by Shakespeare. And that didn't work either. <laughs> but what is it that ties these books together, if anything? Well, I think that I have stumbled across the real answer to this conundrum. It was quite the most exciting thing that has ever happened to me while holding a book in my hands, I can tell you. Um, I was halfway through my PhD on Lewis's theological imagination at the time. Other Lewis scholars have now seen my detailed case and agree that yes, this is what we've been looking for all these years. The BBC recently made a documentary about my book, Planet Narnia, was broadcast at Easter. The book, by the way, is very reasonably priced. <laughs> <laughs> but you might be asking yourself a secret code, a hidden theme. Is this going to be one of these Da Vinci Code nonsense theories, some grandly complex conspiracy which is really utter nonsense? Is it likely that Lewis could have invented and kept a secret? Is it even possible? Well, let me give you five reasons why it's 
not only possible, but indeed probable that Lewis would have done this. Five quick reasons why Lewis was interested in secrecy or hiddenness. And the first of these reasons has to do with his own personality. George Sayer, who knew C.S. Lewis for 30 years and more, and wrote a very good biography of him called Jack, The Life and Times of C.S. Lewis. Jack, of course, was Lewis's nickname. George Sayer says in that book, Jack never ceased to be secretive. And if we're looking for examples of his secretiveness, the most obvious is the fact that when he got married in his late 50s, he kept his marriage secret for the best part of a year. If you've seen the film Shadowlands, you'll know all about this. A secret marriage. It's a contradiction in terms. The whole point of a marriage is that it's a public relationship. But Lewis married this woman, Joy Gresham, and kept it secret for the best part of a year, even from close friends like Tolkien. An extraordinary thing to do. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy, left out so many things that one of his friends joked it would be much better entitled Suppressed by Jack. <laughs> he published one of his early volumes of poetry under a pen name, Clive Hamilton, and he lent this volume to a friend without telling the friend that he was Clive Hamilton. You might have read his book, A Grief Observed, about his bereavement. That was published under another pen name, he used four different pen names in the course of his career. This time it was N.W. Clark. And when readers wrote in to N.W. Clark to thank him for a grief observed, Lewis wrote back to these readers as N.W. Clark. He kept up this facade even in private correspondence. Now, of course, none of these things prove that he invented a secret theme to Narnia, but they do help us assemble a picture of a man for whom inventing and keeping secrets wouldn't be temperamentally or psychologically impossible. That was the first point, psychological capacity for secretiveness. Secondly, a theological interest in hiddenness. If you were a writer like C.S. Lewis, wanting to write a series of stories about Christ, as he said these were, I wonder how you'd go about doing it. If you're, if you're anything like me, you'd invent a Christ-like character who does Christ-like things. That would be the obvious natural way of proceeding. Someone who teaches people and loves people and forgives people and suffers for people. Yes, but that would leave out quite a lot of the picture of Jesus Christ that we get in the pages of the New Testament. Christ isn't just a single, solitary, individual figure moving about a neutral stage, doing things to people. He's the one who makes the stage. He's the Son of God. He is God the Son. He's the divine word streaming forth from the Father. He's the one by whom all things were made. He's the one in whom all things hold together. Now, how do you get this cosmic dimension of Christ into your story? That verse I just quoted, Christ being the one in whom all things hold together, Colossians 1.17 was paraphrased by C.S. Lewis in one of his books where he said that it, would, it could be translated as Christ is the all-pervasive principle of concretion or cohesion whereby the universe holds together. Now the universe, of course, includes you and me and C.S. Lewis and our very understanding of Christ. Our very images that we use to understand Christ are 
themselves held together by him. We can't, in that sense, step outside Christ and look back at him as if from some entirely external spectator's point of view. We're already in Christ because we are his creatures. He's made us. He's sustaining us. And this puts us into something of a predicament, which Lewis writes about in his book, Miracles. He says, the fact which is in one respect the most obvious and primary fact, and through which alone you have access to all the other facts, may be precisely the one that's most easily forgotten. Forgotten not because it's so remote or abstruse, but because it's so near and so obvious. And that's exactly how the supernatural has been forgotten. By the way, you people over there, can you see that? Good. <coughs> Miracles makes this point over and over again, that Christ is closer to us than we are to ourselves. Therefore, he can be overlooked. It's like people who live next door to railway stations. They don't hear the trains because the trains are always going on. They have no negative with which to contrast their positive experience of hearing the trains. In the same way, God's spirit, God's presence, is fundamental to our whole experience as his creatures. We have no negative with which to contrast our positive experience of him. Therefore, he can be overlooked. That was Lewis's theological interest in a kind of hiddenness. Thirdly, an epistemological interest in hiddenness. Epistemology, the science of knowing, the study of consciousness. Lewis once said this, that an influence which cannot evade our consciousness will not go very deep. What did he mean by consciousness? Two things, enjoyment and contemplation. He writes about these uh, in an essay called Meditation in a Tool Shed, where he pictures himself standing in the darkness of a tool shed in his garden one sunny day. It's, it's bright outside this shed, but it's dark inside. And through a crack at the top of the door, he can see a beam of light slanting down through the darkness of the shed. He can see little particles of dust floating in the sunbeam, and it lights up a small patch of the floor. And this he uses as an image of one kind of consciousness, one type of knowing, which he calls contemplation, looking at the beam. It's similar to the French verb uh, savoir, savoir knowledge, knowledge something about something from the outside. But he then shifts his position so that the beam of light is no longer falling on the floor, it's now falling on his eyes, and instantly, he said, the whole picture changed. He no longer saw the beam. The beam, in fact, vanished because he saw along it. And what he saw along it was the crack at the top of the door, the leaves on the tree waving in the wind outside, and millions of miles away, the sun itself. And this he uses as a, an image of a second kind of knowing, a second type of consciousness, which he calls enjoyment, looking along the beam. It's similar to the French verb connaître, knowledge, knowledge by acquaintance, the sort of knowledge you have about someone, not when you're reading facts about them in a Wikipedia article, but when you're in a relationship with them. You don't know about them, you know them. And Lewis's whole purpose in this essay that he wrote is to encourage us to try out every question that presents itself to us in both kinds of knowledge, both types of consciousness. He says we should be like the ancient Persians who debated everything twice, once when they were sober and once when they were drunk. <laughs> there are benefits to our knowledge of being drunk, as it were. That is to say, of being immersed in an experience. 
embraced by it, enveloped by it, when, it, when it's not an object for you to examine from the outside, but rather comprises your whole field of vision. Fourthly, Lewis had a literary interest in hiddenness. He once wrote an essay called The Kappa Element in Romance. Kappa is the initial letter of the Greek word krypton, which means cryptic or hidden. So the title of this essay really means the, the hidden element in story. And the example that Lewis uses to kick off this essay is drawn from the last of the Mohicans, where Lewis argues that when the hero of that story is half sleeping by his bivouac fire in the woods, while a redskin with a tomahawk is silently creeping up on him from behind, what makes for the essence of the scene isn't simply the fact that the hero is in danger, but that he's in danger from a guy carrying a tomahawk. You could have substituted a crook with a revolver, and that would have put your hero into much greater danger. But it's not degrees of danger that matter, it's the quality of the danger. It's a danger that has to be part and parcel of the whole world of the story. And revolvers don't belong in that world. It's a world, he says, of snow and snowshoes, of canoes and wigwams and feathered headdresses and war paint and Hiawatha names. And yes, tomahawks, not revolvers. The inner meaning of the last of the Mohicans, the inner atmosphere or flavor or quality, Lewis says, is red skinnery very politically incorrect 1940s terminology. <laughs> he says this. To be stories at all, stories must be series of events. But it must be understood that this series, the plot as we call it, is only really a net whereby to catch something else. The real theme may be, and perhaps usually is, something that has no sequence in it, something other than a process, and much more like a state or a quality. And this idea of the, the state, the qualitative aspect of story, appears in Lewis's thought many years earlier. In fact, as early as when he was 18, we find him writing to a friend about a story that he'd just written. And he says to this friend, I fear you will like the main gist of my story even less when you grasp it. <laughs> if you ever do. <laughs> For he says, as is proper in romance, the inner meaning is carefully hidden. His psychological capacity for secretiveness, his belief in the overlookability of the divine nature because of its omnipresence, beings which disappear when you look along them, inner meanings of story, carefully hidden. Fifth and finally, one last reason why we might expect Lewis to be interested in a kind of hiddenness. As a literary historian, Lewis once noted that there were various approaches that poets could take when attempting a high religious theme. He writes about these in his review of the Oxford Book of Christian Verse. And one particular approach he calls transferred classicism. In transferred classicism, God is disguised in some degree as a mere god. Chaucer, Dante, Spencer, writers as late as Milton in the 17th century adopted this technique, he says, in which the gods are god incognito. 
and everyone is in the secret. Paganism, he says, is the religion of poetry through which the author can express just so much or so little of his real religion as his art requires. And just as these medieval and Renaissance writers transferred classical gods, classical pagan gods into their presentation of Christianity, so Lewis, I think, has adopted and adapted that technique in his own very original way in the Narnia books. So we're now back at the beginning. <laughs> how are we doing? We are making progress, um, <laughs> believe me. Um, how do the Narnia books hold together if they do? And here it's important to emphasize that although Lewis is by far best known for the Narnia books and for other titles like Mere Christianity, the writing of fiction and the writing of Christian apologetics were not his main job. He was professionally an academic. He taught for nearly 30 years at Oxford and for nearly 10 years at Cambridge. He was a medieval and Renaissance expert. And here he is. And here is one of his biggest academic books, English Literature in the 16th Century Excluding Drama. <laughs> a snappy title. Yes. <laughs> it was a volume in a multi-volume series by different authors uh, called The Oxford History of English Literature. You see that at the top of the page there. Oh, hell, as Lewis called it. He, uh, he rather regretted signing on for this project. It took him nearly 15 years to write this book. And when it was finally published, he said to a friend, I finally finished this big heavy academic book I've been engaged in for the last 15 years. It has been the top tune all this time. All the other books I published during that period were just its little twiddly bits. So that means that books like Mere Christianity, The Screwtape Letters, the early Narnia books, all of which were published in the 15 years running up to this, were to Lewis just the little twiddly bits, the ornamental details, the excrescences upon his major scholarly academic enterprise, which was studying the 16th century. And when you read this book, you find that the opening 20 pages are all concerned with this guy, Nicholas Copernicus, who in the 16th century theorized that the Earth was not the center of the universe. Copernicus was the first to seriously to theorize that the sun was the center. We go around the sun. The sun does not go around us, as everyone previously thought. And this Copernican shift in astronomical thought has a good claim, I think, to being the most important shift in human thought that there's ever been. Copernicus relocated Earth. We had thought we were central. Copernicus showed us that we were actually peripheral. Copernicus is kind of a big deal. And C.S. Lewis, as a scholar of the 16th century, naturally paid a good deal of attention to the Copernican Revolution because he wanted to see how it played out in people's literature, people's imaginations. What effect did it have on the way people interpreted their place in the universe? What effect did it have in the way they told stories and wrote plays and wrote poems? The last book that Lewis wrote was called The Discarded Image, 
which has a long epilogue all about cosmological models and how they affect our understanding of our role in the world and in the universe at large. Three times in the discarded image, Lewis invites the reader to take a walk under the sky at night, imagining that they were medieval people. To medieval minds, the Earth was static and central. You looked up at the night sky, and what you looked up into, Lewis argues, was not empty space, as we now tend to think of the night sky. What you looked up into was not a chaos of vacu vacuity, but a cosmos. Cosmos comes from a Greek word, to cosm, meaning to organize, to structure, to embellish. That's where we get the word cosmetics from. When you apply cosmetics to your face, you're bringing out the structure and the pattern of your features. Cosmologists, likewise, bring out the structure and the, and the pattern of the universe, as they believe it to be. And medieval cosmologists thought that it was structured like this. Above and around the Earth was a sphere of the heavens in which the moon rotated. Above the moon was a second sphere in which Mercury revolved. Then a third heaven belonging to Venus. In 2 Corinthians, St. Paul writes about a man in Christ he knows who was taken up to the third heaven. This idea of a multi-layered level of heavens exists in Jewish literature, both before and after the time of Christ. It's not just a medieval invention. Above the sphere of Venus was the home of the sun. The sun, remember, was regarded as a planet in these days. This is long before astronomers had discovered Uranus or Neptune, let alone the ill-fated Pluto, recently, <laughs> recently relegated to the status of a dwarf planet after a 70-year glorious career as a full planet. Um, and that reminds us, Pluto's recent fate reminds us that planets come and go, and our image of the cosmos is not totally fixed. Above the sun was the sphere of Mars. Above the Mars was the sphere of Jupiter, and then in the seventh heaven was the home of Saturn. We still use occasionally the phrase, I'm in the seventh heaven of delight. It's delightful to be in the seventh heaven because in the seventh heaven you are in that part of the universe which is nearest to the home of God himself. And if you go a little bit further beyond Saturn, you get out of the created order altogether. And Lewis investigated the literary history of this old system very closely. It was his professional job to do so. He felt that the Copernican revolution, although scientifically true and valuable and important, had resulted in the poetic and symbolic qualities of this old image of the cosmos being forgotten. And he wanted to stop that because he thought that if it was completely forgotten, if this image was totally discarded, well, we would have a much harder time understanding the poetry of Chaucer and Dante and other great medieval writers who used this so, ex so extensively. So much had this old image of the cosmos been forgotten that he thought that he, that he realized he couldn't even bank on his students knowing that these seven heavens give us the names of the days of the week. And I've been surprised as I've gone around talking about this there are even extremely educated colleagues of mine at Cambridge that they're unaware that Saturday is named after Saturn. 
and Sunday after the sun, and Monday after the moon, and the other four days of the week after the other four planets, except in those cases, it's slightly disguised from us because we use the Norse names rather than the Roman ones. But we're referring to this old system every day of our lives, though we've forgotten it. It was only these seven bodies that could be seen with the naked eye moving in the sky. All the other stars move in their fixed constellations. But a planet is a wandering star. That's what the word means, a wanderer. So Lewis investigated the literary history of this system very closely. Here's a more contemporaneous uh, diagram of the old cosmos, as it was believed to be. And Lewis, as I say, investigated the history of this system very closely because he thought it was essential to an understanding of old authors. I recently came across this. This uh, is in Lewis's hand. This is from the end leaves of his own copy of Chaucer. And it shows his analysis of Chaucer's knight's tale and how each planet was believed to be governing a different hour of each day. You see the 24 hours of Sunday there, uh, each with its own planetary symbol next to it. Lewis points out how Chaucer wove the seven heavens very intricately into the knight's tale and into certain of his other works too. But it wasn't just an academic interest that Lewis had in this old system. He also responded to it very imaginatively. And he wrote a whole trilogy of interplanetary novels about five or ten years before the Narnia books. The first of which was called Out of the Silent Planet in which the hero, Ransom, goes to Mars, a very medievally imagined Mars. And in the second book of this trilogy, he goes to Venus. And in the third book, the hero, Ransom, he stays on Earth, but he acts as a kind of bridge across which the planetary powers pass as they come down to Earth to bring about the end of the story. And Lewis included these astrological characters, not because he literally believed in astrology, he didn't, but because, he said, the characters of the planets, as conceived by medieval astrology, seem to me to have a permanent value as spiritual symbols, which is especially worthwhile in our own generation. Of Saturn we know more than enough, but who does not need to be reminded of Job? Now, the two things worth particularly picking out from this quotation, one is the word astrology, which often alarms people. They think, astrology? That's occultic. That's pagan. How can Lewis, a great Christian writer, have been interested in astrology? Well, it all depends what you mean by astrology. Literally, the word just means study of the stars. And there's nothing wrong or foolish or dangerous necessarily about studying the stars. They're an aspect of God's creation after all. It all depends what you do with that study. If it leads you to worship the stars, that's plainly wrong. If it leads you to regard their supposed influences over you as controlling you and determining you, overruling your, your, your fate and your responsibility before God, that too is unchristian and to be avoided. But literally, just studying the stars is an innocent and indeed a good thing to undertake. There is good astrology and there is bad astrology. If we're looking for an example of good astrology, the most obvious is the wise men who follow the star to Bethlehem. Uh, 
there's a window up there depicting the wise men as three kind of red, yellow, and blue circles, rather like Smarties. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you can see it, but uh, that, I'm told, is the, is the star of Bethlehem shining on the wise men as they follow the star to Christ's birthplace. They were astrologers. And that's what Lewis means by astrology, studying the stars so as to understand God and his creation better. Why does he then go on to say of Saturn we know more than enough? Well, that's because Saturn was the, it was regarded as the worst planet, the planet who, uh, whose influence shed upon you, brought about all sorts of bad things, disaster, death, sickness, treachery, pestilence. And Lewis once said that his own generation had been born under Saturn. And he said that because his own generation was the generation that was doomed to grow up and in far too many cases not grow up during the Great War. Lewis himself had been a teenage officer during the First World War. He'd been very nearly killed when a shell exploded in his trench. It killed the man next to him. It spattered him full of shrapnel, some of which he carried around in his body for the rest of his life. And he once said that a lot of the culture and general feeling of the 1920s in the wake of the Great War was, as he put it, Saturnocentric, fixated upon Saturnine qualities of death and disaster and calamity. And Lewis thought that was entirely understandable, given the great trauma that Western Europe had just been through. But he also thought that it was an historical accident. It wasn't an eternal truth about the nature of the universe. A much better way of depicting, symbolizing the heart of spiritual reality, he thought, came not from the imagery associated with Saturn, but with the imagery associated with Jove, that is to say, Jupiter. And this is how Lewis describes the Jupiter character in the discarded image. He says, Jupiter is the king. The character Jupiter is associated with, would now be very imperfectly expressed by the word jovial and isn't very easy to grasp. We may say that it is kingly, but we must think of a king at peace, enthroned, taking his leisure, serene. The jovial character is cheerful, festive, yet temperate, tranquil, magnanimous. He brings about halcyon days and prosperity. He's the best planet, the greater fortune. That's Lewis's academic summary of the jovial personality. So Lewis was interested in it academically. He was interested in it personally as it touched his own life as a, as a veteran of the Great War. He was interested in this old system imaginatively and wove it into the Ransom Trilogy. But he also wove it into a long complicated poem that he published 15 years before Narnia. It was called simply The Planets. It's one of his most intricate poems. And let me read you a few lines from this poem. The lines connected with Jupiter. They give an insight into how he thought the symbolic qualities of Jupiter represented the heart of spiritual reality much better than the qualities associated with Saturn. Soft breathes the air mild and meadowy as we mount further where rippled radiance rolls about us moved with music 
measureless the waves joy and jubilee it is jove's orbit filled and festive faster turning with arc ampler from the isles of tin each planet was associated with a different metal from the isles of tin Tyrian traders in trouble steering came with his cargoes, the Cornish treasure that his ray ripens. Of wrath ended and woes mended, of winter past and guilt forgiven, and good fortune, Jove is master, and of jocund revel, laughter of ladies. The lion-hearted, the myriad-minded, men like the gods, helps and heroes, helms of nations just and gentle, are Jove's children work his wonders. On his wide forehead, calm and kingly, no care darkens, nor wrath wrinkles, but righteous power and leisure and largesse, their loose splendors have wrapped around him, a rich mantle of ease and empire. Now I was reading this poem one night in bed in my room in Cambridge in February 2003, when five words from it sprang off the page of me, winter past and guilt forgiven. And I thought to myself, I've come across that in another of Lewis's works, winter past and guilt forgiven. That's as good a five-word summary of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe as you might ask to meet. The white witch's winter passes. Edmund's guilt is forgiven. So I began to look a bit more closely at Jupiter and how Lewis understood Jupiter. And I became aware that he focused especially on Jupiter's kingliness. And I thought, yes, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is also strangely about kingliness. Aslan is introduced as a king. The children don't know who he is at the start of the story, and they, they think he might just be a man, but they're told, Aslan a man, he's the king of the wood. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? He isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And throughout the story, his kingliness, his royalty, all sorts of regal qualities of Aslan are emphasized. But it's not only Aslan who is the king. As I began to look at the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I realized that the whole story is really a clash of kingship. Will Edmund become the king of Narnia under the White Witch? Or will, As will Peter become High King under Aslan? The witch has ensnared Edmund with her promise that she wants a boy who would be king of Narnia after I am gone. And it's this that motivates Edmund. We tend to remember always the Turkish delight. Because <laughs> if we read the books as a child, we wanted that Turkish delight ourselves. <laughs> We didn't particularly fancy being a king. We didn't know much about being a king, especially if we're Americans. Um, you rebelled against the king, after all. <laughs> but Edmund wanted to be a king. He thought about being a prince and later a king. He resolves to make some decent roads when I'm king of Narnia. This set him off thinking about being a king. He wants to become a king so that he can pay his brother Peter back for calling him a beast. That's what motivates him. But eventually, he realizes it didn't look now as if the witch intended to make him king. That's when she holds the knife to his throat. Yeah, he's a quick learner. <laughs> and out of nowhere, Father Christmas turns up shouting, long live the true king. 
And the true king, of course, is Aslan. He has his own plans for the four children. He shows Peter the castle where you are to be king, and the four thrones, in one of which you must sit as king. You will be high king over all the rest. Over all the rest, including Edmund. After Edmund's guilt has been forgiven, he too is crowned, but only after Aslan has demonstrated true kingship in his sacrifice for Edmund's sake. And as I began to explore Lewis's understanding of Jupiter symbolism, I discovered that even the sacrifice of Christ he conceived of in terms of Jupiter. Look at this that he wrote in 1948, just a few months before he began writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When he writes of Jupiter's red-pierced planet, Williams, Charles Williams, Lewis's great friend, Williams assumes that the huge reddish spot which astronomers observe on the surface of Jupiter is a wound and the redness is that of blood. Jupiter, the planet of kingship, thus wounded, becomes like the wounded King Peles from the legends of King Arthur, another ectite, that's to say another reflection of the divine king wounded on Calvary. Now I really began to sit up when I noticed this. This shows us that Lewis explicitly connects Jupiter with, as a symbol of the sacrifice of Christ. And it's the sacrifice of Christ which, of course, he is reworking at the heart of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe in the death and resurrection of Aslan. It's this sacrifice of Aslan that allows the four children to go on and be crowned at the end of the story. It's the, the coronation of the children. It's the climax of the story. It's not, it's not that 20-minute battle that goes on in the film version full of rhinoceroses and polar bears and all sorts of stupid things. <laughs> but don't get me started on the film. Um, in that coronation, Edmund is given the title, King Edmund the Just, and Susan is given the title, Queen Susan the Gentle. Jupiter, according to that poem, that passage I just read to you, influences people so that they become helms of nations just and gentle. And after the coronation, Aslan says, and the professor later repeats it, once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. Kingship is everywhere in this story. And it's for this reason, and for many others, which I don't have time to go into, that I, I've come to the conclusion that the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was deliberately, consciously, but secretly designed to embody and express the qualities of Jupiter. Lewis once said that in many medieval writers, Jove is often Jehovah incognito, that technique of transfer of classicism that we talked about. Here, in the opening Narnia book, he just cleverly kind of reverses that technique so that his god figure is Jove incognito. Well, that is to say, he imagines Christ and a Christ-filled universe by means of Jupiter symbolism. He puts it to Christian effect. He baptizes it, if you like. Aslan is the king, but he inhabits a world in which kingliness is the inner meaning of the whole story. A story of winter passing and guilt being forgiven. A story of children becoming kings and queens. Peter, more than once in this story, exclaims, by Jove. 
which sounds like a throwaway comment. But Lewis has put it there for a very deliberate reason, which I'll come back to in just a minute. One other thing, though, that this uh, helps explain, if it's right, is why Father Christmas turns up in this story. I don't know if you've ever wondered why Father Christmas turns up, or how he can even belong in Narnia, when Narnia doesn't know of a character called Christ. It knows of a character called Aslan, but not of a character called Christ. Therefore, how can it know of a festival called Christmas? Therefore, how can it know of a personification of that festival called Father Christmas? It doesn't make sense. It's illogical. Many scholars and critics have pointed this out, and they've taken it as evidence that Lewis just slapped this thing together in an afternoon without much care or forethought. In his university lectures, Lewis used to say that the jovial character is cheerful and festive. Those born under Jupiter are apt, he said, to be loud-voiced and red-faced. And he used to then pause and add, it is obvious under which planet I was born, because he himself was loud-voiced and red-faced. People used to say he looks like a pork butcher or a prosperous farmer. He, he wasn't your typical anemic and round-shouldered academic. He was a big, booming, hearty man. And he himself used to joke that he must have been born under Jupiter because of this. Father Christmas, loud-voiced, red-faced, jolly, the bringer of jollity, is the nearest thing that we have in our popular modern culture to this aspect of the Jupiter symbolism, the Jupiter character, which has otherwise, Lewis thought, all but been forgotten in the Saturnine 20th century. <coughs> of Saturn we know more than enough but who does not need to be reminded of Jupiter? Cheerfulness, festivity. Here's a medieval woodcut showing Jupiter's influence. There's Jupiter uh, enthroned in the heavens, and down on Earth are his children, those people who demonstrate his various qualities and attributes. So in the foreground there, you see a coronation scene. In the middle ground, on the left, you see a man kneeling for judgment before a judge, and just about, you might just about be able to make out in the background, horses and hounds hunting a white stag. That was the noblest quarry that kings and queens used to hunt under the influence of the king of the gods, the king of the planets. And Lewis weaves all the three of these elements into the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, along with many others. As I began to pull on this thread, the whole tapestry of the Narnia Chronicles began to unravel in front of me, I thought. It wasn't just the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that suddenly began to make all sorts of coherent sense all of a sudden. It was the other six books, too, because I began to see that they also were based on the imagery associated with the other six medieval planets. Now, I don't have time to go through all these other six, but let's just look at two of them. First of all, Prince Caspian. Prince Caspian is constructed out of martial symbolism. This is the Mars story. Now, everybody knows that Mars is the god of war, and Prince Caspian is a war story. If you saw the recent film version, you couldn't miss the battling and military imagery. They really went to town on that. 
This is a story about the Narnian Civil War, the Great War of Deliverance, as it's called in a later book. This is a story about boys hardening into knights, all sorts of gallant and chivalrous episodes. Reaper Chief is described as a martial mouse, and Miraz, the, the usurping king, is described as fretting over his martial policy. The word martial itself appears twice in this story. Yes, you might say, but lots of fairy tales have battles and knights, and aren't there battles in some of the other Narnia books? What makes this particularly martial? Well, it's partly the centrality of these military events, but what really clinches it is the other major theme of imagery running through this book, which has to do with trees and forests. You see them here on the cover of the book. Caspian is just about to be knocked off his, tree, off, off his horse by that falling tree. Now, what do trees have to do with Mars? For that matter, what do they have to do with anything? Why did Lewis fill his story so much with trees and forests? Lucy, you remember, tries to wake the trees, and Aslan enters the story amongst the dancing trees, and the trees come to the battle at the end of the book. Why? What's the imaginative logic? Well, take a look at this image from um, Pompeii, which shows an ancient image of Mars in his capacity as the god of war, yes, with his shield and his spear and his helmet, but he's standing against a backdrop of burgeoning vegetation, because Mars wasn't always and only associated with war, he was originally a vegetation deity associated with trees and forests. And we still actually refer to this in the name of the third month of the year, March. It's named after Mars, because Mars brought life to the trees after winter. He was called Mars Sylvanus. And that's why Lewis puts Sylvans into his cast list in Prince Caspian. They never again appear in any of the other Narnia books. Aslan, in this story, embodies the martial spirit, which is otherwise responsible for the rest of the story, a story of boys hardening into knights, of the girls romping in bacchanalian revelry with the swaying trees and the growing vines. Aslan condenses and locates that spirit in his own person. And we see this in two ways. First of all, he gives a great war cry, which summons everyone to the final battle. And secondly, he can wake the trees, though Lucy cannot. What Lewis has done with the martial symbolism is the same as what he did with the Jupiter symbolism in the first book. Aslan focuses it, focuses this spirit this spiritual symbolism, which is otherwise spread abroad across the rest of the tale in such a large and grand sense that you can't see it. But it can be seen in the person of Aslan. This is the theological reason why Lewis did this, I think. This is the whole purpose behind it. I talked earlier about the theological hiddenness of God. We can't see God because he's too big for us or because he's too near to us. We miss him, but we can see him in Christ, because in Christ he's neither too big nor too small. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So Prince Caspian is the martial story, Mars symbolism turned to Christian effect, transferred classicism, using the pagan gods to say something about Christianity. 
We don't have time to go into why the voyage of the Dawn Treader is the sun story, nor why the silver chair is the moon story. Though really you could guess both those from the title alone. Dawn Treader, journey towards the place of the rising sun. And the silver chair, everybody knows that the moon's metal is silver. We don't have time either to go into the horse and his boy, which is the Mercury book, nor the magician's nephew, which is the Venus story. But let's just quickly have a look at the last battle, which is the Saturnine story. Saturn, as I mentioned, was considered to be symbolically the worst of the planets. You look at the night sky with your naked eye, this is you know, before the invention of the telescope. The telescope was first invented in 1609, we're celebrating its 400th anniversary this year. But before the invention of the telescope, you looked at the night sky and you could just about make out Saturn, moving very, very slowly. Why would he move slowly? Perhaps it's because he's ill. Perhaps it's because he's old. Perhaps it's because he's sad. You can see how the medieval imagination got to work on what it saw of Saturn in the night sky. Aslan, in this book, is worryingly absent. He doesn't appear at all until all the characters have died. Saturn, as I said, is the planet of treachery, disaster, calamity. Not only is Aslan absent, he's apparently changed so that he's now in favor of putting the talking beasts under the yoke. He's in favor of felling the talking trees. Worse still, he's said to have changed so that he's now Tashlan mixed with the pagan god Tash. Nothing worse can have happened in Narnia than this. This is the Saturnine influence spread abroad in the story. But, in addition to all these bad things that Saturn was supposed to be responsible for, he brought about one good thing. He enabled you, if you responded correctly to his influence, he enabled you to become a true contemplative. He enabled you to acquire a kind of godly wisdom seeing into the heart of things, undeflected by superficial appearances to the contrary. And that's what we see in the characters of Tyrion and Jewel and the other faithful Narnians who remain loyal to Aslan despite his absence from this story. It's interesting that of all scriptural verses, the one that appears in Lewis's writing more than any other, by quite a large margin, is Psalm 22. Verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Lewis meditates on this verse all over his works. And I think it's responsible for that episode in the last battle, where Tyrion is tied to a tree and cries out in a loud voice, Aslan, come and help us now. And nothing happens, or so it seems. But despite this forsakenness, Tyrion remains loyal. And he knows, he realizes that this idea that Aslan has become Tashlan must be all a cheat. He becomes a true child of Saturn. And we know this because Narnia is brought to an end by Saturn himself, or rather Father Time. Here's an image of Father Time with his scythe and his hourglass outside uh, the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. 
In the discarded image, Lewis points out how Father Time is based on earlier pictures of Saturn. They are the same character, mythologically speaking. Here's a further image of Saturn from Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in London. Saturn is just about to eat that baby. That's what Saturn did, because he is time. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all his sons away. Father Time swings his scythe, blows his horn, and Narnia comes to an end. And if you look at an early draft of the Narnia books, you see that Lewis had actually originally intended to call Father Time Saturn. It's there in the typescript. But by the time he came to publish the book, he decided to call Saturn Father Time because he banked, he reckoned that most people wouldn't make the connection. And this would help him hide his planetary scheme a little bit more carefully. But the last battle is the Saturn story, without a doubt. Now, if I'm right about this, if C.S. Lewis really did deliberately structure the Narnia books out of these seven spiritual symbols, as he called them, why did he never tell anyone what he was up to? Surely the fact that he nowhere in his letters or his conversations is recorded as mentioning this secret, doesn't that indicate that I'm barking up the wrong tree? Well, we know that he was capable of keeping secrets. If he was able to tell no one about his marriage, he would have been easily able to keep a secret like this, a relatively minor and unimportant secret. But even if we didn't know he had this psychological capacity for secretiveness, we know that he had a fully worked out theory of literary hiddenness. He wrote an essay about it, for goodness sake, the Kappa element in romance. We ought really to be expecting him to do this. The planetary influence in each book is the Kappa element, the cryptic atmosphere, the flavor, the quality of each story. Lewis once wrote that the characters of the planets need to be seized in an intuition, not built up out of concepts. So if you think about the atmosphere of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, say, you are intuiting the character of Jupiter, assuming Lewis has been successful, which he might not have been. But I think that was his intention. At any rate, he wasn't just trying to tack on jovial imagery as an afterthought. The whole story is designed, structured, organized, cosmos of jovial symbolism. Lewis once said that the whole story began with a picture in his mind's eye of a fawn in a snowy wood carrying parcels. That image had been in his mind's eye since he was 16. And one day he said to himself, let's make a story out of it. And it's my belief that as he looked at this image in his mind's eye, he saw two things. He saw the snowy wood, and that, because of its association with winter, was naturally connected in his mind with Saturn, who everywhere in his work is associated with the coldness of winter. And yet, on the other side of the picture, he had a fawn carrying parcels, the would-be Christmas parcels. So there, in that very image, he has a clash of the Saturnine and the jovial atmospheres. Of Saturn, we know more than enough, but who does not need to be reminded of Jupiter? And it's my belief that he began to tease out this symbolism and turn it into a story. However, when Peter says, by Jove, as he does a couple of times in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and indeed in one or two of the other books, 
He has no idea of the significance of what he's saying. He doesn't understand that he's in a world and in a story in that first book which is created and sustained and in the process of being redeemed by Jupiter, that is to say by Aslan, imagined by means of Jupiter imagery. And the children's unawareness of this fact is a reflection of that common human condition that I touched on earlier when I was talking about Lewis's theological interest in hiddenness. Throughout his writings, Lewis points out that we have a natural tendency to be oblivious to the obvious. In mere Christianity, for instance, he says, since that divine power, if it exists, would not be one of the observed facts, but a reality which makes them, no mere observation of the facts can find it. And in his book on prayer, he says, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. And in his book on miracles, again he writes, God is opaque by the very fullness of his blinding actuality. God is too big for us to see, like the large words which escape us en masse. And God is too small for us to see because he is closer to us than we are to ourselves. But in Christ, he becomes just the right size for us to see. And the children in the story can see the incarnation of Jupiter, so to speak, in the form of this kingly, lion-hearted Aslan who does away with winter and bleeds for the traitor and romps with the girls and summons Father Christmas who crowns the children, promises them eternal kingship and queenship. And this is enough for them. They don't know that their whole world is upheld by this jovial spirit, or at any rate, they don't know it with their savoir knowledge, but they do know it through connaître knowledge, knowledge by acquaintance, looking along the beam of joviality. They feel it. They know it from inside. And that is enough for them. Lewis once said that coming to know God is much more like breathing an atmosphere than it is like learning a subject. You can't get a handle on God. You can't get an angle on God from outside and study him as if he were just like a railway timetable. You've got to get to know him personally. So let me conclude. These planetary symbols these spiritual symbols of permanent value, as Lewis called them, which undergird and really irradiate the Narnia books, were implanted there, I think, as a kind of imaginative depth charge. Lewis presumably expected that his readers would eventually spot what he was up to, but he wasn't going to tell us what he was up to because he wanted to communicate to our imaginations, not to our intellects. He wanted to do imaginatively what he had done rationally in straight non-fiction prose in so much of his Christian apologetics. He wanted a subtler, deeper, more poetic way of writing, making, making each book in its totality convey the point he wanted to impart. Remember, an influence which cannot evade our consciousness will not go very deep. It needs to sink down beyond, beneath our contemplative consciousness into our enjoyment consciousness. In Narnia, he imagines God in a way 
which makes the medium of each book the fundamental message. And this, I think, is one of the reasons why the books have been so success successful, because readers have felt that there's more going on here than meets the eye. They have sensed, they have intuited a world at harmony with itself, a world in which there is a kind of resonance between the Christ character and the story in which he appears. So the Chronicles are indeed about Christ, as he said they were, but they're about Christ in a much richer and more imaginatively sophisticated way than we previously realized. They're not just simple one-to-one -one biblical allegories. They're much more Christian than just that. You could say it was a trick that Lewis played on his readers, but it was a trick with a very serious purpose. Lewis very Socratically, you know the Socratic method of teaching, where the teacher asks the pupil questions, doesn't lay it all out on a plate, waits for the pupil to work it out himself. Lewis very Socratically was waiting to see how soon his readers would detect this presiding and constituting spirit within each of the seven books. If we can't detect the governing spirit of a short children's story, well, why should we think we know so much about the divine spirit who upholds the actual universe in which we all live and move and have our being? We teach the world we create, Philip Pullman says, and I'm sure Lewis would have agreed with that. We teach the world we create. The world Lewis created in these stories is on the surface confused and inconsistent and random, just as we so often feel the real world is confused and inconsistent and random when we see accidents happen and innocent people suffer and all sorts of inexplicable things going on. But at its heart, Narnia is coherent, purposeful, richly teeming with creative intelligence just as the real world, too, is coherent and purposeful and richly teeming with creative intelligence despite all appearances to the contrary, so we believe. Down to the curve of every wave and the flight of every insect. Thank you very much. <laughs>